program is brought to you by UCL, London's global university. It's been kind of well, slightly depressing this week in the sense that several people have heard the title. Um, who thinks the answer is yes? <laughs> who thinks the answer is no? Yeah, so it's pretty consensual on the no. I mean, we could kind of leave it there, but yeah, so the, the answer is probably no, but we'll, uh, we'll go through. I did have a yes to the question a few years ago. I was, um, I was doing what is often the frighteningest audience that you have to encounter as a person engaging the public with science, and that's the University of the Third Age. Who here is a member of the University of the Third Age? You're very welcome. It's, uh, it's what we called in the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience the super oldies. Right? So these, these, are the, these are the high functioning retired people from my side, and they are the most uh, terrifying audience because they always come up with the best questions. They're usually, you know, retired admirals or brain surgeons or whatever, and it doesn't really matter what you're expecting to speak about. There's somebody who knows more about it than you do, which is going to be kind of my point in the end of this lecture as well anyway. But there was a very charming lady who came up to me afterwards, and she said, um, I've, I've, I've signed a form to donate my brain to science after I die, and I just have a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you about that. And I said, okay. And she said, um, well, my first question is, will my brain be sliced up after I've donated it? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's going to be sliced up. Um, I mean, it'll be taken out of your head and sliced up. And they said, and, and will the slices be sent to different laboratories, or will they all end up in one laboratory? And I said, well, the chances are they'll be in different laboratories, not the same one. And there was a pause. And I said, is that OK? And she went, oh, yes, no, it's fine. I was just curious. So um, it turns out that she still donated her brain uh, to neuroscience. Her answer was yes. Um, but she just wanted to know what was going to happen to it. Um, and I th I'm going to come back to the thought of, of uh, public engagement information about science and people who are part of the process anyway towards the end. So, uh, to introduce myself, as you see, my name is Daniel Glazer, and I'm, I've got a couple of honorary positions here at UCL. I work in my day job um, at the Wellcome Trust, which is a big charity just up the road. Who has been to Wellcome Collection? Yeah, it's nice coffee, isn't it? Good coffee and free Wi-Fi and uh, very nice exhibitions. And we're a big charity that funds uh, biomedical science. We fund about as much as as the government does uh, in the areas that we fund. And my job there is to commission new ways for the public to engage with science. Um, and it's perhaps in that respect that I'll be talking uh, to you today. And the rough plan of what I'm going to do is I'm going to sketch out in the first bit what, you know, sort of what it would be like if neuroscientists did rule the brain. Okay. I'm going to then, I suppose I'm going to sort of quite rapidly come to, I think they call it in Latin reductio ad absurdum. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of show why that would be a crazy thing to be the case. And then I'm kind of gently going to introduce a bunch of ways in which non-neuroscientists might contribute to the understanding of the brain. Right? And I'm going to end up with quite, you know, in that stream with quite a strong political view that maybe it's the non-neuroscientists who ought to be, at least in some sense, determining how we study the brain. And then I'm going to read you some poetry at the end that will suggest that actually, you know, there might be a role for the scientist after all. So that's the rough trajectory of the thing. And um, 
For the first bit, I want to use a, couple, a husband and wife uh, sort of team called the Churchlands, Pat, Patricia and Paul Churchland. And firstly, with Patricia Churchland, um, I want to show you a slide about um, what neuroscience is, what neuroscientists do. Um, and this is a, a slide, an image that was taken um, from a paper in Science, the, the, the sort of second premier magazine uh, in science, um, the first one being Nature, in about 1986. And kind of amusingly enough, it's the best slide you can put up about what neuroscience is, but neither of the authors of the paper were neuroscientists. So Patricia Churchland uh, is a, well, she calls herself a neurophilosopher, but I mean, essentially she's a philosopher. And Terry Sanofsky um, is a, well, computer scientist, um, machine learning kind of person. So, I mean, already, lesson number one, and we'll probably come back to this repeatedly, if you want to know what's going on in an area of science, it's not always the best idea to ask a scientist who's working in that area, if that makes sense. If you want to know what's going on in an area of science, it doesn't always make sense to ask a scientist. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of generalise that out to a, a thing I call the... the um, scientist in the lab next door thing. If you want to know what's going on in a lab, you go to the lab next door and you say, excuse me, what are they doing in the lab next door? And they say, well, you know, they're taking uh, people with diseases and they're taking some genes from those people and they're putting them into rats that don't have the disease and they're seeing if the rats get the disease. And you go, okay. You go into the lab in question, you say, so what do you do here? They say, well, we're working on the RNA transferase interpolation of the P52 gene in a wild-type, you know, nothing. And, and, the, and, and the reverse will apply. You ask that person what the person next door is doing, and they'll give you a very clear account. And again, I think we might, we might in the end, and perhaps in questions, come to a sense of why is it, you know, that scientists are not always good at explaining what they themselves do, when they clearly do have the capacity to explain science, because if you ask them what their neighbour does, they'll tell you very clearly. So we'll come, we'll come to that question in a little bit. Anyway, this is an example of that in the sense that it took a philosopher and a machine learning person to produce the best diagram of what neuroscience does. How are we going to do this? We'll do this with the pointer. We're going to do the pointer. Okay. So basically, on the side-to-side um, -side axis, you've got time. And on the up-and-down axis, you've got space. It's a log scale because we're trying to cover a lot of territory. So things that are near the left of this picture are very fast. Things that are near the right are quite slow. Things that are near the bottom are small. And things that are near the top are big. Right? So that's how this graph works. So, uh, and what this shows you is how different neuroscientific techniques allow you to study different bits of the brain. So let's just quickly think about what some areas of this might look like. And what, why are we doing this? We're doing this to understand what neuroscience does or how, how it does it, right? So, for example, um, if you were near the bottom left of the image, that's really little things that happen really quickly. There's a technique called patch clamp where you stick a little uh, pipette, tiny, tiny one, you know, uh, a thousandth of a millimetre uh, in diameter, and you sort of impale a single neuron. You can actually, I've done this in, in anaesthetised um, cats and monkeys, actually. Uh, and you can record inside the neuron of a living beast. Um, and you can notice uh, things changing really, really quickly inside the neuron. Okay? If you go right up to the other end, the top right, you've got large things in brain terms that are happening slowly, and that would be a lesion study. So who here has heard of Phineas Gage? By name, hands up high, who's not heard of Phineas Gage? Right, so he was a guy who um, worked uh, in the American railways, putting dynamite in holes. And what he did was he had these holes drilled in rock. 
he would stick the dynamite in, he would tamp it down with a tamping iron, it was an, an iron bar, and you know, eventually the inevitable happened, the dynamite exploded while it was being tamped, the bar shot out of the hole and entered through his eye socket and exited through the top of his head, and he walked to the super... I mean, there are a lot of apocryphal stories around this, but roughly speaking, he walked to the supervisor's office, I think I've had an accident, and they, you know, they kind of patched him up, and again, accounts vary as to how impaired he was, but you know, he, he had difficulty holding... Uh, down jobs and, and was a bit of an argumentative so-and-so, didn't keep his friends for long, but basically walked, talked, you know, and everything with, you know, the front quarter of his brain missing. So we can, you know, we can learn from lesion studies to what different bits of the brain do, and less facetiously, the history of neuroscience in the early 20th century was a lot about uh, the development of high-velocity bullets, which could take out some but not all of your brain, and the development of antibiotics, which allowed us to keep people alive once their brain had, you know, had been damaged so that we could see what happened to them. Right? So lesions you know, are good at studying that. So we have this whole array of techniques of neuroscience. And they tell us uh, in various exciting and clever ways about what's going on inside the head. And I mean, I don't propose to dwell on this a lot because you can find it any day of the week uh, all over the place on telly and, and in UCL and around the shop. But since this slide was made in, in the... Uh, late 80s, um, a new technique up near that PET thing there. PET is positron emission tomography. But there's a thing which many of you will have heard of called fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. I'm not going to tell you, give you a tutorial on that, but roughly speaking, it uses a clever quantum magnetic effect to see where the oxygen uh, is in your brain. And since the brain requires more oxygen where it's more active, you can see which bits of the brain are more active at different times by using this magnetic effect when someone's in a scanner. People do that a lot, and they produce lots of beautiful pictures of activations and statistics of activations inside people's heads. So we have this beautiful array of techniques which we're able to use to see what's going on inside people's heads. And the domain of neuroscience is kind of the academic discipline which encompasses those techniques. Incidentally, um, we'll come a little bit to interdisciplinarity a bit later, but there were no professors of neuroscience in the world until about 1995. Right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a kosher domain for many, many years. It was only, you know, in the 90s, for reasons which I'll probably come back to a bit later, that it, um, that it really took off. So, what can you do with neuroscience alone, all right? Um, and, and what would a world be like where you believe that that's the best way of understanding the brain? So Patricia Churchland there, Pat Churchland, her husband, Paul Churchland, is also a neurophilosopher. And he came up with a concept, which I think is rather frightening, but I want to kind of offer it to you as kind of exhibit one for this story. Um, he came up with a thought called eliminativism. Eliminativism. Um, and what eliminativism says is that, and this is a quote from Paul Churchland, that the, the, the terms of folk psychology, now what's folk psychology? Folk psychology is belief-desire talk. It's explaining people's actions on the basis of beliefs that they're in their heads, desires that they might have. You know, so-and-so uh, picked up the water bottle because he wanted to have a drink. Right? So that's an account of my action which is based on beliefs and desires. There's plenty of evidence that that's not what's really going on inside your head. There is no such thing as beliefs and desires, but you can, we talk about each other in that way. So Paul said in Eliminativism, belief-desire talk, folk psychology, will come to be eliminated first from the laboratory, and then from the clinic, and finally from the marketplace. 
that this kind of talking about brains will come to be eliminated first from the laboratory, then from the clinic, and finally in the marketplace. And what he suggests by this is that as we understand more and more about the brain, our uh, um, descriptions and understandings of how we and others are working will shift to use that terminology. We'll say, Dan's dopaminergic reward system pre-potentiated when his visual cortex was activated by the bottle and he initiated a motor sequence which resulted in this rapid satiation of his thirst center ensued, um, which is why he stopped drinking after a certain point. Okay? And his notion is that once we understand the brain from a neuroscientific point of view, we can dispense with all of this stuff about beliefs and desires and replace all that with some accounts of what's going on inside the head that are driven by neurobiological principles. Possible. A strong, um, a strong uh, version of that uh, view came up in a famous argument, and I found, well, I hope you'll agree, two quite kind of macho pictures of the protagonists um, to this argument, uh, quite deliberately. Um, uh, an argument that, that uh, took place again in the 90s between Christoph Koch on the left, on the left, Christoph Koch, and, uh, and on the right, David Chalmers. Um, obviously, David Chalmers is a, is a philosopher. Um, and uh, on the right, and, uh, and Christoph is uh, obviously quite a kind of macho neuroscientist, um, as you can see from the cut-off T-shirt. If you're watching, Christoph, hi. Um, so, uh, and, and, and here's what happened. Dave Chalmers, who's a pretty good Australian uh, philosopher of mind, came up with an argument as to why we could never solve the hard problem of consciousness. Right? And I mean, I'm not going to, again, this isn't a philosophy lecture, so I'm not going to go into any particular detail. But the, you know, the hard problem of consciousness is why, why does it feel like it does to be alive? What is the nature of subjective experience? And, and philosophers like Dave Chalmers think about zombies. A zombie is someone who looks, feels, talks, behaves exactly like you and I, but as a matter of fact has no conscious experience. Now, Given that this person looks and feels and talks like you and I, if you say, so, how do you feel today? I said, fine. You know, uh, what's going on inside the head? I don't know. I, I just have all these sensations, and uh, it's great to see you, Dan. Um, but actually, there's nothing going on inside his head. You know, there is, it's, it's just a zombie. So, so these philosophers wonder how you could distinguish between a zombie and a non-zombie, given that the only difference is in how it feels. And if, it, you know, if, if how it feels doesn't de depend on any particular single bit of uh, neuron, then maybe you can't just so they get, they get very concerned about this. Chalmers came up with a proof, right, philosophically, of why you could never solve the problem of consciousness by doing an experiment. He showed philosophically that any experiment where you purport to say, no, no, we've done this scan, and we found this activation in this area, and that's what consciousness is. It's activation right there. Chalmers purported to show that he would be able to explain why that wasn't true, because, aha, no, I could... Well, what if the person in the scanner was actually a zombie, who was, you know, and so on. So there was this big argument. Chalmers purported to show that there was this thing called the hard problem of consciousness, which neuroscientists could never solve. Christoph Koch is a neuroscientist who is trying to solve what he calls the NCC, the Neural Correlates of Consciousness. His, his, his job is to find out what consciousness is from a neuroscientific perspective. And when he was asked what he thought of the fact that Dave Chalmers had shown that this was impossible from a philosophical point of view, why was he persisting in, in his project, given that Dave had shown that it was doomed to failure? He said, look, Dave's job is to come up with arguments about philosophy of mind, and my job is to find out what the neural correlates of consciousness is, right, to resolve that from a neuroscientific point of view. When I've succeeded to find the neural correlates of consciousness, what it is 
that consciousness is. I'm sure Dave will be among the first to spot the errors in his argument. <laughs> right? Okay, so you know, when I've done it, I'm sure he'll work out why he was wrong. I'm not going to try and do that because I'm not a philosopher. Right? That's his problem, not my problem. I'm going to get on with it. Okay? So, I mean, I think, you know, that's kind of amusing and macho, but I do think it encapsulates to some extent uh, a fairly uh, clear sense of what neuroscientists might think philosophers are about and why philosophers might be exasperated by that kind of response. Okay? So that's, where, that's one of the tensions that we're living in in this domain. And I want to make a side point on this, and this is kind of important to understand where neuroscience is today. Um, you know, like I said, neuroscience is kind of an arriviste domain. It's not, it wasn't a, a branch of science in the kosher sense, you know, 30 years ago. Um, a lot about the progress, a lot of progress in science is really arguments not about what's true, but about who gets to determine what's true. It's not about the facts, it's about who gets to tell you the facts. So if you look at, you know, Copernicus or something, right? I mean, you know, Earth going around the sun, sun going around the Earth, all that kind of malarkey back in the day, in the 16th century. So it took ages for the Pope to index, to ban, under the Inquisition, Copernicus's work, De Revolutionibus, that talked about that. And so I did this for my undergraduate dissertation. It took him ages to ban it. And when he did ban it, the bit where Copernicus says the Earth goes round the sun rather than the sun goes round the Earth, all the bits where Copernicus says, and so we can see from this mathematical demonstration that the Earth goes round the sun, they literally, the books exist today, pasted over that with a piece of paper that said, let us assume for the sake of mathematical convenience that the Earth goes round the sun, and the rest of the book could stand. Right? In other words, as long as Copernicus was just saying, well, look, if we have to calculate the tides and everything, then we might as well assume that way round, because it's mathematically more tractable. As long as you're not actually claiming anything about reality, because that's something that physicists do. Right back in the day, natural philosophers were the ones who told you what was really there. Mathematicians calculated tide tables. And as long as the, you know, who controlled which domain was clear, that was all right. Okay? And what we're seeing with neuroscience is exactly that kind of argument. You can tell from the slide, it's an argument about territory. Until about 1990, the neuroscientists didn't really address the big questions like consciousness, love, um, aesthetics, that kind of thing. That was left to the psychologists and the philosophers. And a funny thing happened in the 90s, and this is probably the central historical message of the talk, which gave rise to the kind of situation that we're in today. So up to the 1990s, and this, I mean, those of you who work in the domain, and there are some of you here will forgive me for this um, uh, rather rough sketch, but the community, uh, you know, was sort of, the people looking at the brain were divided into two camps. They were the brains in vats people, and I myself was a brain in vat person. I mean, I did most of my PhD work on anesthetized, paralyzed cats. And that's about as close as you can get to a brain in a vat in a living animal. It's not, there's nothing much interesting going on in the brain of an anesthetized, paralyzed cat. They don't have, they don't have um, you know, goals. Um, they don't have uh, imagination. Um, and, and, and they were killed at the end of the experiment. I mean, so, you know, it was just, we were just looking at the, which, is, which was the ki literally the kind of thing to do. So brains in vats, studying the circuitry of the cortex, trying to work out which bits are with neuroanatomy, functional anatomy and so on. And then there were the psychologists, and some of those were even called um, behaviorists, right? So they explicitly said, we don't care what's going on inside the head, it's a black box. I'm, I'm doing this guy quite a lot at the moment, so you'll forgive me if you've heard it before. But behaviorists, right, disavowed any interest in what was going on inside the head. They were just interested in behavior. And the classical joke about those two behaviorists in bed, and one says to the other, that was great for you, how was it for me? Right? <laughs> so, 
you know, they, they, they judged everything, as it were, from the outside. And the question of introspection and the question of what was going on inside people's heads was not of interest to them. So what happened uh, in, you know, the decade of the brain, as it was in the 1990s, was that the two were sort of combined. And having combined, you know, having, you know, started to recapitulate, which is still happening, the history of psychology going back 150 years, doing that all again, but in the brain scanner this time, so as well as showing the functioning of the visual system by showing lots of clever patterns, they were actually repeating it in the brain scanner, okay? This empowered, as one might say, neuroscientists to address a bunch of questions which were previously taboo, which were not uh, within the compass of brain science. How, was the, how are they enforced as not being within the compass? Partly from the outside, but principally from the inside. It was a self-policing domain. As a neuroscientist, even in the early 90s, if you said you were going to look at consciousness or love, you were ridiculed by your peers. Right? They just thought that was fluffy and silly. You know, whereas uh, now it's I mean, still considered to some extent that, but much less so. So the boundaries of who looked at what um, were beginning to be blurred. Let's whiz through some examples of what neuroscience might or might not be able to tell us, and we can consider, and we'll come to this in questions, whether you think that would be justified or not. So my old friend Helena Bonham Carter, um, in her breakthrough film, uh, Room with a View, um, spent a lot of time wondering what was going on inside her own head, and indeed, um, those around her spent a fair amount of time wondering what on earth was going on inside her head too. Here you can see Freddie. Um, trying desperately to uh, look, to read her mind from the outside. Um, and uh, arguably, um, I mean, and there are plenty of people, you know, making movies today uh, and, and making products who believe that the right way to understand what's going on inside people's heads is to put them in a brain scanner. I mean, they would argue that all Freddie need, would need to do now would be to wheel Lucy Honeychurch down to the local hospital, uh, stick her in the scanner, show a picture of Cecil Weiss and a picture of George Emerson and, and read out from inside her head what her responses were and then this whole bloody mystery would be cleared up. Okay, So that's one thought. Interestingly, the filmmaker has a different view. If you compare a kiss between uh, Lucy and George, this is in the famous poppy field scene, um, with a kiss between Lucy and Cecil, I mean it's quite clear which one she's in love with and which one she isn't from the outside, isn't it? I mean, don't think she's in love with this one. Do think she's in love with that one. I mean, it's just from the way they're standing. Uh, and so, in a slightly non-facetious point, and you know this sort of, this crate, I mean, we don't really care what actually happened, right? But imagine two tribes of monkeys, right? One of whom, for biological reasons, had come to be able to conceal their emotions, and another tribe of them couldn't. Right, so some of the monkeys, when they were one, one species, when they were scared, would go, <gasps> you know, and the other ones would go, right. So the um, so so the the claim again, who cares whether it's true or not? But the claim is that the ones who couldn't conceal their emotions were more successful than the ones who could, because if you're a social animal, it's not that helpful if people can conceal what they're actually thinking. Right, society social, social interaction works principally on the basis that we can read each other whether we want to want to or not. Okay, so. The point I'm trying to make here is that actually the signs of what we feel, right? And this, I mean, there's a, there's a again, very quickly and loosely, there's a mild Damasio, Antonio Damasio point here. He talks about emotions. He says, you know, emotions are stuff that's coming out. It's, you know, I often say to, for myself, I know I'm happy when I see myself smiling in the mirror. 
right? I mean, I'm almost a behaviorist in that sense. It does seem that the expression of these emotions may give a more accurate representation of what's going on in your head than even the most detailed and precise mapping. I mean, who would claim that it's a brain scientist rather than her lover or her brother that is in the best position to determine who Lucy Honeychurch really loves? I mean, would we know that by looking inside her head? I guess the answer, for me, you know, from, from the point of view of what we're talking about, would be no. Now, on culture, there is a kind of uh, trend to, to bring brain science in. And I want to argue, I'm dancing around a little bit here, that there is a role for that, in part. And let me show you an example which some of you will be familiar with, I guess. So this is a, a Bridget Riley. Um, I was trying very hard, sorry Wikiworld and, and Podworld if, um, if this breaks, um, we were told to get images that could be shown in the video cast, non-copyright ones, so I went very carefully and, and what I'm saying about this is the, I mean the other ones were definite copyright theft, I got them off some website, but um, this is the uh, uh, fair use image of movement in squares off uh, Wikimedia um, from Bridget Riley. Who here can see something weird going on when they look at that picture, like something they didn't quite expect? Something a bit odd, yeah? Who can't see anything? Who, to whom does this look absolutely just like a bunch of squares? Yeah? When I sit, well, you're all a bit unconvinced. When, you know, this, is there not some sort of shimmer going on just at the point, yeah? Okay. So my friend Steve Dakin, um, uh, also in UCL, he reckons that, he, he asks himself, what would be a useful um, caption, you know, side panel to this when it's up in Tate? There's a bunch of hers up in National Gallery at the moment as well. But up in the tape, what would you put next to it? And conventionally in history of art, right, uh, you'll say, well, this was painted in 1961 when Bridget, I mean, we're going to make all of this up, none of this is true, um, had uh, left Cornwall, uh, had recently fallen in love, was experimenting with the black and white period, which many commentators take to be a reflection of the absolute moral codes which she was presented in by her education, which were subtly distorted by, her, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's what's supposed to help you to enjoy the picture. Steve, well, listen, you know. So, uh, Steve reckons that the caption should go, the increasing spatial frequency by which he means, you know, fine checks rather than coarse checks, towards the quadrant on the right, fools your, and this is also not true what I'm about to say, but I'm just giving you the kind of thing that you could say, fools your, the, vis, the part of your visual system that looks for movement into thinking that something's movement, moving. Every time your eyes move across that uh, zone in the right, because the frequency of the checks gets finer, your movement detection system is fooled into thinking that something is moving. But your, the other part of your brain knows that it's a still image, and so it generates an inconsistency which gives rise to this subjective shimmer that's happening there. Now, Steve would claim, claims, and I kind of am with him on this, that that particular account of why this is good, or how this works, or what's going on, is more illuminating than, or at least as illuminating as the historian of art one. Okay? Would we claim that you can understand everything about what's good about this picture from such an account? No. I don't think we would. We wouldn't say that you can reduce the experience of this picture to, its, to a description of what's going on in your head for at least two reasons. Right? One is because of the zombie thing. I mean, you know, we're still a long way from knowing what the feeling of it is like. But even if we could, I still think that there is an argument that culture is going to produce beautiful artifacts that are beautiful because of a story that includes stuff outside your head. There will always be a need to know what you've seen in the past, to know where you're coming from, to re read your expectations about the world, to have a deep, the kind of deep knowledge of culture which philosophers and cultural critics bring. But 
I'm going to claim, neuroscience can add to the picture. So what you want is some kind of symbiotic relationship between these two different ways of understanding the same system. That's going to be the claim broadly. Okay? Let me give you a couple of examples of how that can work in practice. If I had more time, incidentally, I'd tell you all about Chris McManus's stuff about real and false Mondrians, but I'll leave you to look that up on the web. Chris, has generated, Chris at UCL has generated some real Mondrians and then he's distorted them to false Mondrians um, and he can kind of uh, show a little bit in the brain about why the real Mondrian is better. But in the end, uh, I think he's null on this. So let me show you some ways in which, uh, first of all, an understanding of the brain can be promoted by listening to people who aren't neuroscientists. And here I'm going to refer to my old dear friend Isabel Rocamora, who staged the piece that you can see here at the Victorian Albert Museum a few years ago. That's Camila Valenzuela descending on a pulley uh, from the top of the cast gallery in the V&A. And Isabel, who's a, an artist and acrobat who produces these works, has the following quote. She says, in hanging work, that's what this is, hanging work, not, not peer point, but um, uh, hanging work. Uh, in hanging work, all movement is automatically a metaphor. In hanging work, all movement is automatically a metaphor. What does Isabel mean by this? So Camilla is suspended by a harness which comes off of her back. And what that means is that when she lifts her hand, which I can't clearly demonstrate kind of because of the point I'm making, her legs go out the other way right, to counterbalance it. That doesn't happen when you're standing up. And in particular, when your brain reads out that movement by looking at it, it can't interpret it directly. It can't read it out on your own motion control system because we don't spend all that much time suspended by ropes from our back, right? So when we see that movement that Isabel choreographed for Camilla, we see it metaphorically. We can't see it literally because our bodies don't behave like that. The systems of our brain, which we would ordinarily use to read movement, shimmer a bit, a bit like the Bridget Riley. It's moving in ways that we don't quite expect. And from Isabel's point of view, right, her, her work is powerful because she exploits that phenomenon. She can do you a thing about love and death better because she's exploiting the fact that your visual system can't read literally this movement. She's automatically and immediately um, taken Camilla into the realm of movement metaphor. Now, that factoid that claim that Isabel made gave rise to a whole research program which I was part of uh, at the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience into how the movement control brain helps you to read movement. I'm not going to tell you about that in, any, in great detail but there's plenty of stuff on the web work that I did with Julie Grays and Patrick Haggard and um, Beatrice Calvo Marino. We did some lovely studies, a whole bunch of studies with ballet dancers and capoeira dancers looking at how they see movement, inspired by the insight which an anti-gravity artist had into movement. If we'd been stuck in the lab, right, on our own as neuroscientists studying the brain, we would not have come to this question. The question would not have arisen. Right? So it's only by talking to experts outside the domain that you can address the issues that matter, in my view. Right? Final point then, before we come to questions. And uh, oh, I love the internet. You Google, you Google Grecian urn, right? And because um, I want to read you a bit of Keats, and uh, and it, and it comes up. I bet this is copyright violation as well. But there you go. Um, uh, it, it's got John Keats. It's only got John Keats's actual picture of a Grecian urn, isn't it? It's the bit that he sketched in his notebook when he was writing his ode on a Grecian urn. So there, I thought I'd give you a picture of a Grecian urn, but what I've actually got for you is John Keats's picture of a Grecian urn. So why am I bringing you the, the ode to a Grecian urn? So some of you will know there's a book by Richard Dawkins called Unweaving the Rainbow. Is that right? 
Is that what it's called? Yeah. And, um, and so that, you know, two minutes, this is the sketch of that argument, all right? So the quote, Unweaving the Rainbow, comes from Keats again, from a poem called The Lamia. And Keats is a, is a kind of romantic that I don't like, in the sense that Keats claims that by understanding things, you, are, you destroy their beauty. So in the Lamia, there's a philosopher who reveals the true nature of a, of a maiden. She's actually a snake. And as soon as he says what she's like, all the beauty's gone. And Keats rails um, against, he says, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? Right, he asks. Um, philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and nomad mind, unweave the rainbow. And this is, a, in his time, a, a complaint against Newton, who took the prism and split. It's by understanding things, you take away their beauty. And the Grecian urn begins, as some of you will know, thou still unravished bride of quietness. The, the poem that he writes is wondering what's going on in the picture. Is she sad because she's been bereft? Why is she running away? And why is she naked? And what's, going, what's happening around the back? Um, and, uh, so, you know, these are the questions. But, he, but, but when he says unravished bride of quietness... He's claiming that if you were to know everything about it, the beauty would be lost. Right? The ravishment, the true ravishment of the Bride of Quietness would be to explain everything about her. Okay? Now, classically, what's thought is that scientists destroy beauty by understanding it. That by bringing in to the picture, not exclusively, a neuroscientific account of love, consciousness, and whatever, we destroy the mystery and get rid of it. But I don't actually think that's true. And I also don't think that most... People who appreciate art believe that's true. I don't think this is an art-science divide, because when you study literature, when you read the program notes in the ballet, when you read a review in the paper, you are getting someone to explain to you how a thing is working. How does this dance piece work? What's good about this novel? And where I want to leave you is with the following thought, that what we need to do to understand the brain, to understand culture and the world we live in, is to incorporate neuroscientific uh, insights that are driven by questions from the bigger world, from dancers, from everyday experience. We want to bring that in, but we want to incorporate them into an account of what the brain is like that takes elements both from within neuroscience and from culture more broadly. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you very much, Daniel. And now it's open for questions from the floor. Ravished, you were. And here. I think you should probably wait for the microphone if you wouldn't mind, just because it's on the web and people will hear. Thank you. I know this is, um, you're talking about neurons a lot, but I was wondering what about the hormones on the effects of um, how the brain works? Because I think they're very, very important. I'll tell you a funny, the question about hormones and how they affect how the brain works. We were talking earlier about a friend of mine um, whose daughter is the uh, same, whose son, in fact, is the same age as my daughter. And she's also a, a cognitive neuroscientist. And we went through pregnancy together in the sense that, you know, she and I would go out for coffee um, and talk about the stage that she and my wife were going through at that point. And, um, uh, and you know, it, she was saying about how the hormones were messing with her as she became pregnant. And, I mean, I'm sure you know any measure of cognitive or emotional function for a woman shows a monthly cycle, right? I mean, any IQ, numerical reasoning, memory tests, everything. If you plot for a given woman how 
her, she performs on any of these tests, there will be a monthly cycle. The problem is that there's no clear relationship between menstruation and numerical ability. For some, one goes up, one the other goes down. For some, one precedes the other. So, you know, it's complicated, but there is always a cycle. Um, incidentally, the argument that men don't have these things, I mean, if you ever try offering a bloke constructive criticism within five or ten minutes after a road rage incident, right? <laughs> you, right oh, I just wondered if you... you know, so it's not as if men aren't um, driven by their hormones as well. But anyway, so, but, but what we realised was that, you know, it, she said, she realised, she got the insight, it's not as if she is being affected by her hormones... She is her hormones, right? It's not that there is this thing, I mean, I'll call her Sarah for the sake of it. It's not that there is this Sarah, right? And then there are these hormones impinging on that Sarah, right? I mean, just to be clear on this neuroscientific accident, I don't think there's something other than stuff in the head. I mean, it's not the spirit I'm interested in. It is all electrical stuff plus chemical stuff. So the hormones, you know, are what we are. They don't affect what they are. They constitute what we are. Um, and sure, there's plenty of, tons of good neuroscience. Uh, looking at the effects of, of uh, you know, dopamine, cortisol, all these kinds of things. So, yeah, it's an important part of the story. That was a really interesting talk. You mentioned fMRI and the ability to localise the activity in the brain when subjected to a stimulus. Isn't that a trivial thing? Well, it's quite expensive <laughs> and quite dangerous. Um, I mean, there's a, okay, it, it, well, I'm not sure if this is what you're asking. It's, it is slightly trivial in the sense that it's so hard. So it took me, okay, I did my PhD for seven years in Israel. It took me seven years to get the PhD, and three years of that was building the setup. It was really, really complicated. fMRI is even harder than that. It's so hard that you have to have a complete professional operation. You need radiographers and physicists and, you know, the whole malarkey millions of pounds and, and, and serious running costs. And it's so hard, therefore, that the scientists become users. You can't build your own setup. And one of the problems with MRI, fMRI is that a, a master's student can pitch up over the summer with a bright idea, code it up on PowerPoint, flash the slides in front of a dozen subjects which have been recruited by the recruitment people, run the analysis on an analysis, bit of analysis software, and produce an artifact in, you know, before they even know, and in many cases get it published. Right? So the, you know, the, there is a problem that it's trivially easy from the user perspective. The question of what's going on in, you know, where, where the activations are in your head, I mean, you can tell silly stories about it if you want, the love centre and the, the dream centre and the math centre and so on. But the smart people aren't doing that. I mean, it's sort of the easiest way to a science paper is find the centre for, for X or the centre for Y. But, I, but most of us, even perhaps especially non-neuroscientists, realise that that doesn't tell us anything interesting. I mean, if you found the, the love centre in Lucy's brain, what is, you know, so what? So... There are trivial things you can do with that, as there are trivial things you can do with the telescope. But there are smart things you can do too. And the smart people are producing interesting paradigms, so asking an interesting question, a question that's intrinsically interesting in terms of what you're getting people to do, and then doing the anatomy off the back of it. So no, not always trivial, sometimes trivial. Thank you. Uh, well, the neuroscience was a very cruel, was a very cruel science quite a long ago, and I mean, uh, MRI and, and things like that uh, made it like that you don't need to kill the cats now, and, and you know, the same with, with patients and, and non-intrusive. So how do you feel the neuroscience as it is like moving with the, with the terms of 
science subjects, which are people usually, or, or the animals there? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I'd agree with cruelty. I mean, in the sense that the cats I was working on, you know, had a pretty good life in cages and so on, if you don't, I mean, if you don't mind cages as such, and then got a little, you know, one shot in the leg, and that was the last thing they knew. So I don't think it was particularly cruel. And certainly in this country and, and many uh, Western countries, there are, there's, a, as you know, a very, very advanced set of regulation on that. Is there less animal neuroscience than there was 10 years ago? I don't think so. I think there's more human neuroscience than there was, but I'm not sure there's less animal neuroscience. And I think we have, I think most of us feel pretty comfortable with the regulatory framework. I mean, some scientists think it's a bit burdensome, some people think it's a bit lax, but broadly speaking, on a consensual social basis, most people reckon that, you know, the Home Office regulations and so on are doing a pretty good job of balancing the discomfort and, in some cases, pain, if you're studying pain for animals, and the benefits. I'm fairly comfortable with that. Thank you very much, Daniel. I'm getting signs that it's the last question now, so um, uh, I need to terminate. So just to thank Daniel very much indeed for a very interesting lecture. Thank you very much, Daniel. To find out more about UCL, please visit us at itunes.ucl.ac.uk.